Thank you, Brian, for that prayer. I received that uh, blessing. Have you ever noticed how difficult, difficult it is to be humble? Or maybe you know someone that needs a lesson in humility. I mean, you think that you have everything kind of wired. You have all the answers. Everything's dialed in. You know what's up. You know what's down. You're really the master of your domain. Then something happens that brings you to your knees. Maybe you've heard the story of the uh, atheist who was very self-absorbed, self-assured, and proud of himself, who went for a walk out in the forest. He thought to himself, what majestic trees, what powerful rivers, what beautiful animals. As he continued walking alongside the river, he heard a rustling in the bushes. Turning to look, he saw a seven-foot grizzly bear charging toward him. He ran as fast as he could up the path. Looking over his shoulder, he saw the bear was closing in on him. His heart was pumping frantically, and he tried to run even faster. He tripped and fell on the ground, and he rolled over to pick himself up, but he saw the bear raising his paw, ready to take a swipe at him. At that instant, the atheist cried out, Oh God, save me! Time stopped. The bear froze. The forest was silent. It was then that bright light shone upon the man, and the voice from heaven spoke out loud and said, You deny my existence? For all of these years, you teach others I don't exist, and that even creation is just the result of a cosmic accident or primordial sludge? And now you expect me to help you out of this predicament? Am I to count you as a believer? The Lord said. The atheist looked directly into the light. It would be hypocritical of me to suddenly ask you to treat me as a Christian now. But perhaps you could make the bear a Christian. Very well, said the voice of God. The light went out. The sounds of the forest resumed. And then the bear lowered his paw, bowed his head, and said, Lord, bless this food for which I am about to receive and for which I am truly thankful. All of a sudden, I don't know if you're like me, all of a sudden you're out of control. We don't have the world by the tail. We are humbled. I, I wonder if that's ever happened to you. Maybe you've gone fishing like I have. Now today we continue our series of messages on it. And today we look at the it trait, humility. It acts like down-to-earth humility. Now let's just review what we've discovered in the first few weeks. The first week we talked about the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with our intelligence or our talent or our abilities, but it's surrendering to the Holy Spirit in our lives and allowing that presence and that power to literally flow through us. Then two weeks ago we looked at the it trait a passion for his presence, a deep hunger and thirst for Jesus that truly and completely satisfies. It satisfies your hunger and quenches your thirst. It's not a passion for religion or about knowing about God or about a desire for what God can provide or do for you. It's simply and profoundly a passion for Jesus. 
You want victory? You want life? You want abundance? You want freedom? You want resurrection? Jesus says to each of those things, I am it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am it. A personal, intimate relationship with me. And then last week we discovered uh, with a very important it quality is integrity. Walking straight and standing tall. Not meandering, not, not uh, riding the fence, not playing the field, not meandering or skulking in the shadows, but simply walking straight on God's path. Being single-minded, no masks, no duplicity. Like Olivia Newton-John sang to, uh, Olivia Newton-John sang to John Travolta in Greece, I'm hopelessly devoted to you. That's it. Now these are the it traits that we've looked at the first three weeks. And today that it trait that we're looking at, that it trait we're looking at is humility. Now there's a natural segue from last week's integrity message to this week's focus on humility. Now, one of the um, minor prophets in the Old Testament, written, this book was written 700 years before Jesus, uh, was the prophet Micah. And uh, he made a statement in chapter 6, verse 8, that we quote quite often here around church, around Grace Community Church, and you hear it in other venues as well. But listen to these powerful words from the prophet. Now, he is telling you what the Lord has said, okay? He, God, has showed you, oh man, what is good, okay? What is good? We better pay attention to this, right? And what does the Lord require of you? Really pay attention to this, to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Compassion, mercy, and justice. In our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, we have an entire department that's called CMJ, for Compassion, Mercy, and Justice, based on Micah chapter 6, verse 8. In our church, at Grace Community Church, we have a lot of ministries that are compassion, mercy, and justice related. In our world today, Everything we're talking about around how we treat each other during this COVID epidemic and about racial reconciliation, all of these things have to do with how we love our fellow brothers and sisters and how we treat them with justice and mercy and compassion. Now, what I'd like to really dig in on is that last phrase in Micah 6.8, to walk humbly with your God. So let's just kind of dig in and take that apart. The first little phrase in that is simply, to walk, a straight path, a life of integrity. Now, you'll notice that to walk is a verb. It's about motion. It's about movement. It's not sitting around idly and saying, okay, God, please show me what you want for my life. It's moving towards God and towards other people with love and humility in our hearts. It's movement. It's a verb. It's about how we love each other. So then, as you continue that phrase, to walk, and then to walk humbly. Not proudly or boastfully, not with a swagger, but with a sense of a greater purpose, a greater passion, a greater reason to be walking. It's not about me. 
And it's not about my needs and desires. It's about someone else. It's about gratitude. It's about, again, that greater purpose. And what is that greater purpose? We see that in the next part of the phrase. To walk, to walk humbly, to walk humbly with God. There's the purpose. To walk in the same direction as God. The same agenda, the same heart, under the subjection and authority of Jesus Christ. Keeping in step with him. Emulating the way he does life. The way he loves, the way he serves, the way he walks, the way he speaks. To walk like him. And we don't do this as a slave or a servant. We do this as a son and a daughter. To walk humbly with God. Now, in the New Testament, um, uh, in Christianity, especially the last hundred years, um, the phrase to accept Jesus Christ or receive Jesus Christ, both good phrases, and we know what they mean, to pray the prayer, to ask Jesus to come into your life, to be your Lord and Savior, all good. I'm not knocking that at all. But that's really not what Jesus' call was. Jesus' call to make disciples was a word that is used over and over and over again by Jesus. You know what that word is? It's the word follow. Follow me. In other words, there's action to it. It's not just praying a prayer. There's action to it. Say, okay, I am going to put all of my needs and desires down, and I am going to follow Jesus. I'm going to walk like him, talk like him, act like him, speak like him, think like him, believe like him. I'm going to walk like Jesus. We are called to be followers, to walk humbly with God. And then the last part of that phrase, to walk, to walk humbly, to walk humbly with God, to walk humbly with your God. There's a a personal, intimate kind of feeling to that, to walk humbly with your God. It's a very personal relationship. There's this mutual love and devotion. It's not just a kiss on the cheek or a stroll in the park. It's people that are committed to saying, okay, Jesus, I'm going to keep step with you. We don't lag behind. We certainly don't go in front of him. We walk humbly with our God. There's that personal intimacy with that. Now, in my uh, 40 years of ministry, uh, I have had the privilege of doing over 250 weddings. And uh, weddings are always wonderful, and they're beautiful, and One of the neatest parts of the wedding is when you see uh, the bride and her father uh, walk up the aisle and uh, there's just this beautiful sense of, oh, this is great and they're making a commitment to each other, uh, these two people that are engaged. It's just really a beautiful thing. So all of the weddings I've done, I've always enjoyed that part of the ceremony, but a time that I really enjoyed that is when I did my daughter's wedding. So I was not only the officiant along with another guy, I was also the dad. And so that walk up the aisle was different than every other time I've seen other people walk up the aisle. It was personal. It was intimate. It was my daughter Tamara and me. It was doing something together in lockstep that we knew and we believed with all our heart was the right thing to do. That's what it means to Walk humbly with your God, with that sense of purpose and love and passion and humility. Now, now, what does this look like? 
at the grand scheme of God's redemptive plan, why does this humility matter so much? Let me give you a three or four minute theology lesson about humility. It all starts in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God creates Adam and Eve out of the dust of the earth. And here's these two human beings that are beautiful and perfect in every way. And the God has made all of this uh, beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden. It's this fertile region between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, this Mesopotamian valley. It's rich with trees and fruit trees and nuts and shrubs and plants and animals and vegetation. It's just gorgeous and it's wonderful. And God says, all of this is for you. Have dominion over all of this. Enjoy all of this. But there's one tree in the back of the forest, okay? It's kind of scraggly, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, you don't want that. You, you don't want that tree, okay? That's, that's something you don't need to know about. You don't want to know about evil. He said, well, why did God even give them that choice? Because, well, God needed to give us a choice. God wants us to love him because we choose to love him not because we have to love him. So they had this choice. And in spite of all of the beautiful things around them, they chose to go to that tree and wonder. Now, as they were there, the serpent, which is um, Satan personified, the serpent whispers to them, now, maybe God really didn't mean that. I mean, if God is a loving God, why wouldn't he give you all things? Maybe you misremembered what God actually said to you. Maybe it wasn't really, don't eat of this tree. Why don't you go ahead, and maybe this fruit is even sweeter than the fruit of all of the other trees. And so they choose to take that fruit and to eat it. Do you know what they chose in that moment? They chose this statement to be their reality. I know better than God. That's what Satan whispered to them. Maybe God really didn't mean that. They decided to believe, I know better than God. And from then on, all of the human race has made that same choice to believe in their heart, I know better than God. I can run my life better than God can. I can do things. I don't need any help. I can do this on my own. Now, let's go back to Satan. There's a backstory to him. He was an angel created before human beings were created. And his name was Morning Star. Uh, later it was changed to Lucifer or Satan. But Morning Star. Now there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 14 that speaks of this. Now theologians say that they believe that this is not only in the context of Babylon they're speaking to, but it's also what they call eschatological. It's looking to the future. In this case, eschatological, looking to the past. What happened? Why Satan, this beautiful angel, was thrown out of heaven? Listen to these words from Isaiah uh, chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. How are you fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning? You have been thrown down to the earth. This is Satan being thrown down to the earth. You who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself... I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Satan said, the reason he was thrown out of heaven, he said, 
See, angels had a choice too. I want to be like the Most High God. In other words, Satan, Adam and Eve, and let's be honest, you and I have said the same thing. I know better than God. Just the opposite of humility. The first thing that was ruined when sin entered the world was a healthy sense of place. God is above me. I am his creation. I am here to serve him. As soon as you say, now God isn't above me, he's just kind of beside me, he's just kind of over here, I'll check in with him when I need some help, but mostly I know better than God. A healthy sense of place. God, you are God and I am man. I bow down, I bend a knee to you. That's humility. And the rest is history. Literally, the rest is history. Sin sin still manifests itself in pride and control. Bending a knee to God is humility. But people constantly say, I will not bend a knee to anyone, even to God. So um, February of 1990, uh, I was serving a church in Lakewood, Colorado, a suburb of Denver. And um, the Midwinter Conference that year was in Denver. And every February, uh, you know, 1,500 covenant pastors come together for the Midwinter Conference and have fellowship and, and uh, drink a lot of coffee and tea and eat a lot and go to a few meetings and all of that. It's, it's really a great event. But this particular February was about three and a half months after our son Tyler was killed in a bicycle automobile accident. I was angry at God. I was furious at God. Now, I didn't show it. I didn't say it, but I was. You say, well, why did you go to the Midwinter Conference? Why did you just not blow it off? Why did you want to go and be in all those meetings? I didn't want to be in all of those meetings. I didn't want to see my friends, but I felt desperately I needed to get away from home. You can't imagine the pain I felt listening to my amazing wife cry herself to sleep every single night, trying to comfort my kids. I was a chicken. I was a coward. I wanted to get out of there for a week. And so I went to the conference. I sat in my room. To show you how desperate I was, I watched hockey on television. That's how much I didn't want to be there. But it was something just to distract me. So my friends would come up and say, hey, they'd call me. Hey, you want to have a dinner? No, thanks. You want to come join me for the meeting? No, thanks. And time after time, the call after call, no, 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 no. And then Mick Murphy, one of my friends, came up and knocked on my door. I said, come on in, Mick. And he came in. And I was laying on the bed, and he said, hey, um, let's go get something to eat. No, I don't want to. Well, let's go to a meeting. No, I don't want to. He said, okay, listen, I have prayed for you and Sherry and Tammy and Nathan, but I haven't prayed over you. And he literally pulled me off of the bed, onto my knees, put his hands on me, and prayed that I would open my heart to Jesus once again, that I would stop trying to blame God and that I would simply experience his love once again. That was the beginning of my healing. But it didn't happen until my anger and rage was put on my knees in a proper sense of place. God, I don't understand this, but you are God and I am man and I choose to love you anyway. To walk humbly with your God is to bend a knee toward God, to knowledge, to acknowledge that he is God, that you are not, that it is his path, his purpose, his destination, and I submit myself to him. 
Of course, the best picture of humility, the real model of humility, is Jesus Christ himself. So we're going to turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles with you, to John chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. But let me give you a little backstory. This is the uh, uh, during Holy Week, uh, during Passion Week, starting with, uh, you know, with uh, Palm Sunday, ending with Easter, and all of the events in between. This is Thursday evening, the time that we call the Last Supper, Tenebrae. And uh, the disciples gathering in an upper room and Jesus is going to have his last meal with them before he was crucified the next evening. And so they gather. And uh, this is what happened in verses 1 to 5. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them, listen to this, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already promoted, prom, uh, prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to, 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 to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It had been a long day. Jerusalem is packed with Passover guests, most of them clamoring to get a glimpse of the teacher that they'd heard so much about. The spring sun is warm, the streets are dry and dusty. The disciples enter the room one by one, and take their places around a table. By the door hangs a towel, and on the floor sits a pitcher of water and a basin. Any one of the disciples could have volunteered for the job, but, well, that's for the servants. No one chose to help. After a few moments, Jesus stands and removes his outer garment. He wraps a servant's girdle, really it's like an apron, around his waist, takes up the basin and kneels before one of the disciples. He unlaces the sandal and gently lifts the foot and places it in the basin and washes it. One by one, one grimy foot after another, Jesus works his way to every one of the disciples. In Jesus' day, the washing of feet was reserved for the lowest of servants. You might say it was kind of an entry-level servant's job. In this case, the one with the towel and basin is the king of the universe. Hands that shape the stars now wash away the filth. Fingers that formed mountains now massage toes. And the one before whom all nations will one day bow now kneels before his disciples. Hours before his own death, Jesus' concern and message is singular. He wants his disciples to know how much he loves them. More than removing dirt, I think Jesus was removing doubt. Jesus knew what would happen. These feet he is washing will run from the flash of the Roman sword. 
Here's something else to notice. I looked for the Bible translation that reads, Jesus washed all the disciples' feet except for the feet of Judas. It's not there. Within hours, the feet of Judas washed by Jesus will betray him. What a gift Jesus gives to his followers. He knows what these men are about to do. He knows they are about to run like cowards. But in this singular act, Jesus declares, he said, I want you to see the full extent of my love. See it. Feel it. Know it. In fact, in less than 24 hours, you're going to see another act of love that's even greater. And that's when I die on the cross for your sins. Jesus bent a knee to his Father and to his disciples. He bowed to the one above him and he bowed to the ones below him. In this moment, Jesus' humility is palpable. This act was maybe the second greatest act of love in the universe. The first was the cross the very next day. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul tells this in Philippians chapter 2. Now, remember, whenever Paul is, is laying down what seems like some commandments or some rules or regulations, he's not bringing any new rules or regulations into the Christian faith. What he's doing is applying the one rule, the one commandment that Jesus stated, Christ's commandment. That one commandment is to love each other in the same way that God in Christ has loved you. So all of Paul's explanations are really to explain and to apply this one Christ commandment. Listen to Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, listen to this, in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or seized, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus said, I want you to know how much I love you. And I want you to know what it means to follow me. What it means to follow me. Now at the end of chapter 13, at the end of the story, Jesus says, now disciples, do you understand what I have just done in washing your feet? Because they had complained, especially Peter. Okay, yeah, we, we understand. Do you know why? I washed your feet. Oh, yeah, okay, we get it. We know why you washed your feet. He says, now, I want you to go and do the same thing. See? It's not a matter of believing the right way. It's a matter of living the right way. It's a matter of following Jesus. Serving exactly like he served. Our attitude should be the same as Jesus. Consider others better than yourselves, being other-centered. To look to the interests of others. 
Jesus took on the nature of a servant. He humbled himself on the cross. He bowed down. He bowed down. Listen to this. He bowed down. And when he was bent over, he received all of your sins and your brokenness and your failures and your anger and everything. And all of that laid on his shoulders as he was bent before his father. And he took those to the cross. That's what God has called us to do. The key there is to keep your eyes on Jesus. How does he live? How does he show humility? How is he humbled? Even though he was greater than every one of us as creations, how did he show humility to us? Jesus would say, do you understand why I did that? Do you know what I want you to do? I want you to do the exact same thing. You want to know humility? Follow me. You want to know how to walk straight and tall without being duplicitous? Follow me. Do you want to understand what it means to put others first? Jesus said he showed them the full extent of his love. In the same way, we are to bend a knee and walk humbly before your God. There's um, about maybe eight or ten years ago, there was a man in our church uh, by the name of Grant. He was in his late 40s. He had a lot of physical uh, problems, and uh, it was obvious to everyone and to the doctors that uh, he was dying. I went to visit him at Gilbert Mercy Hospital in Gilbert, and uh, he was laying on his bed, didn't look very good. The doctors had said it only a matter of maybe a few days before he leaves this earth. And as I talked to Grant, I noticed that just right above his thigh, right on the wall, just maybe three inches above where his thigh was, uh, there was a cross on the wall. His bed was right up against the wall. And I said, uh, Grant, um, from where you're laying, you can't even see that cross. Would you like me to ask the nurses if I can take that and you know put it up higher where you can see it? He said, no, 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 no. He said, Dwayne, when I, um, when I get on my knees beside the bed, that's exactly where my eyes go. There's something miraculous about being humble like Jesus, to bend a knee, to serve him, and to love him with all our heart, to walk humbly, before your God. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for the model that you gave us in your son, Jesus, to understand what it means to be humble, what it means to sacrifice for another, what it means to put our desires and needs and wants off to the side in order to serve someone else. And what it means to show the full extent of his love. Father, you've called us to that. You've called us to love each other, to, to love each other in the body of Christ, to love each other in the world, to love even our enemies. You have called us to show the world the full extent of your love by loving them. 
Father, I just want to thank you that um, we don't have to wonder what it means to be humble, but we need to simply bend a knee and to walk humbly before our God. And I pray, Lord, that every listening ear would receive this truth today by your power. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.